The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin. Internet Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 30th, 2023. Over the past few months, Israel's military has reportedly been using drones to map Hamas's vast tunnel system and attempt to locate hostages. How to treat cyber attacks conducted as part of armed conflict has become an increasingly prescient topic, and debates over the legality of autonomous weapons in conflict have heated up as countries continue to make progress in the domain. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from February 9th, 2019, in which Chuck Blanchard sat down with Lori Blank and Jamie Morin in a panel discussion hosted by Arnold and Porter's Veterans and Affiliates Leadership Organization to discuss what the future of warfare will look like, the ethical and legal questions raised by technological advances on the battlefield, and more. I'm Matthew Kahn, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 9th, 2019. From the increasing development of autonomous weapons systems to the expansion of the traditional battlefield to cyber and outer space, the evolution of warfare invites ethical and legal questions about what the future holds. In November of last year, Arnold Importers Veterans and Affiliates Leadership Organization hosted a panel discussion to explain what warfare will be like for the military veterans of the future. Former Air Force and Army General Counsel and current Arnold Importer partner Chuck Blanchard moderated a conversation with American University Law Professor Ken Anderson, Emory Law Professor Lori Blank, and Jamie Morin, Vice President of Defense System Operations at the Aerospace Corporation and a Director of the Center for Space Policy and Strategy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 390, The Future of Warfare. We'll start with Jamie, who, who will talk about sort of what his thoughts are about what the battlefield will look like in the future. Let me say just a brief word about my, my organization that I'm, has offered me the opportunity to come here, which is Aerospace Corporation, which was created by the U.S. government in 1960 and 61 to help the government run space programs, Air Force space programs, intelligence space programs, and now today also NASA and other activities. So we're almost 4,000 people. The vast preponderance are engineers and hard scientists. And what they're doing is providing sort of inside the tent advice to the government as they try and make technical choices and work with all of the for-profit companies that are seeking to build things for our armed forces or NASA or so. 
I work with this tiny portion of that group that's dedicated to policy and strategy issues. And because we're a small group of people within a big group of engineers, our focus is on harnessing the technical insight of the whole crew, but turning it into terms that make sense for policy. So hopefully that perspective is helpful as people are thinking about legal issues surrounding technologies. But the the perspective I'm going to bring to the discussion today, and I will warn you up front, Chuck asked me, uh, Chuck mentioned to me when I came in that we were now down two panelists and said, cover more than you planned. So, <laughs> so this may get a little interesting. Um, but working for an organization that helped to invent GPS and helped to design essentially all the architectures that provide our national security space and many capabilities, communications and otherwise that everybody here in this room uses, whether you know it or not. One of the things that I think it's very easy to fall victim to and fall into is a trap of sort of technological determinism. That something happened technically and it, it was fated to happen and the world adapts once that technologically deterministic thing is I'm not going to talk so much today about uh, specific GWIS technologies or, you know, new weapon systems that I worked on in the Pentagon. In, in my last job in the Pentagon, my responsibilities were to sort of build the five-year investment plan for the Department of Defense. And uh, the Deputy Secretary and I did a lot of work surrounding what some of you may have read about this concept of third offset strategy for the United States and the notion that in a period of sustained conflict with uh, or potential conflict with major powers, the U.S. needed to be very deliberate about making investments that were designed to secure a stable deterrence environment and counter some specific areas where potential adversaries had made investments and, you know, gotten at some of our sources of enduring advantage, one of which, by the way, is the issue I'm working mostly today, space. Having done that kind of work, I, I dealt with a lot of GWIZ and a lot of gadgets, but the GWIS and the gadgets are not the heart of the problem or the issue for military planning. We don't decide, hey, let's figure out uh, whether we can employ AI to kill people because it would be cool and stress the lawyers, right? We, we identify specific military problems that we're trying to grapple with, and then we have a range of technology that is possible today and a range of technology that we might seek to develop in the future that we think could help us solve those problems. So what I'm going to talk about today is mostly about understanding that, those, those problems, and that I think will help uh, feed into some of the conversations from my legal colleagues here about the legal, maybe even ethical and moral issues that come in when you start to try and solve those problems. So I got to work on several major uh, strategic portfolio reviews at the Pentagon, and where we tried to realign our resources and get after these big problems. Three of them had titles that are kind of relevant to the stuff we're talking about today. One was on power projection. And when I say power projection, that is sort of the heart of the American way of war since the end of World War II. Right? The U.S. military gets together, goes somewhere, and imposes American will abroad. Usually it's defense of an ally or defense of a vital American interest, but we, we get up, we go somewhere, and we do something. Often things that on their face are quite hard if you think about human history and the limited ability of nations to project force into other nations and how, how difficult that is. Of course, we often learn how hard it really is ourselves, too, and we, we've had some painful experience with that. 
But so that was power projection. We did several reviews related to that. We also started doing reviews related to the converse, counter power projection. And the fundamental insight behind that is that we, we have moved from a world, you know, the world in which I grew up with, of two superpowers, the post-Cold War world in which I sort of started my professional career of a single superpower or hyperpower. We're now in a world where we still, in my mind, have a superpower, the United States. But we now have at least two major powers. And the distinction in my mind is while a superpower with regard to random countries around the world can essentially impose its will if it chooses to, a superpower operating on the doorstep of a major power has to take that major power's considerations. It has to take their, their uh, position into consideration. It's not, it's not a cakewalk. It's not a blindly impose your will if you choose to. And so while the converse is not true, right? The, the major powers have much more limitations relative to the superpower. It is not a, it's still not a relationship of equals. It's a relationship of mutual regard and consideration because the costs of conflict are high. So we were thinking about, well, let's say a nation that in some respects is unfriendly to the United States is seeking to impose its will on a near neighbor, perhaps an ally, friend or partner in the United States. That nation has some extraordinary, the the major power seeking to do that has some extraordinary advantages, foremost among them, time and space. Right? They are typically going to be seeking to impose their will on someone who is right next to them. We are not there. What, what I said before about power projection, right? We go to fight the away game. Away games are harder. And the technologies for away games are vulnerable technologies. You've got to get a whole bunch of people in ships and sail them somewhere. Get a whole bunch of people in planes and fly them somewhere. Impose your will in other ways. Those things create vulnerabilities, and projection of power can also be a projection of vulnerability. What we tried to grapple with with the counter power projection analysis was really about how what choices that potential adversaries might be making in terms of imposing their will on a neighbor that's a friend of ours, what vulnerabilities might that create for them? And how can we block it, basically turning us into the asymmetric? Seeking those seeking asymmetry. Now, not surprisingly, I can't talk a lot about all the specifics that we came from out of that study, but we have talked publicly about three major areas that we identified in coming out of that study, and I think they're worth highlighting. But the core geopolitical insight that I think was behind all of that work was that this environment of major powers and superpower in which the major powers feel they have both an ability to assert themselves in their near abroad, but also an asymmetry of interest, an asymmetry of motivation, there can be misperception there. And that puts deterrence at risk. Uh, in the United States, we field and equip an armed force primarily to avoid war. We've had some bad experiences, and we, we don't seek to repeat them. Sometimes we choose to, but by and large, we are laying out defense events. Those ends uh, drive us to a degree of vulnerability because given that time and space advantage of an actor nearby, we will be seeking to undo a fait accompli. And if, the, if a potential adversary believes they can achieve a fait accompli and then offer us a very difficult path to undo it, they may think that we will, not, that we will be deterred and we will not stand up for a commitment. So the idea of the counterpower projection approach 
is how do you make them revise down their assessment of their probability of success in that potential effort to achieve a fatal? And in doing so, the hope is we dramatically increase our ability to do comprehensive deterrence of conventional conflict. So that, that's the goal. But those adversaries do know the majority of our combat power rests in the United States, and it will take us time and effort to bring it to them. They also know that we are deeply dependent on advanced networks, command, control, communications, intelligence networks, and that when those things work for us, our forces are enormously effective. You know, it is now a cliche in the defense world to talk about potential adversaries going to school on the Gulf War. The then chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force, General Merrill McPeak, referred to that war as the first space war. And it was because it brought together global positioning, which allowed the U.S. military to navigate through uncharted desert and completely, survive, uh, completely surprise tactical forces, Iraqi tactical forces on the ground, communications to coordinate all of that as they did it. And in the big political fight of the war, the missile attacks on Israel and not potentially on other U.S. allies, the ability to know what was happening, right, because we could provide warning of that sort of activity from space. And all of those things came together to allow the U.S. to do things we, that other nations looked at and said, my God, they could do that to us too. And so in the ensuing two decades, you've seen significant investment both in building similar capabilities for other advanced militaries, Russians, Chinese, certainly, but many more besides that, and then also investment in ability to deny the U.S. those capabilities, some of which are very fragile. Right? GPS is shockingly easy to jam. Uh, we see instances all the time in the United States where people have cigarette lighter GPS jammers. Truckers in particular tend to do this to defeat the uh, tracking systems that their companies put on them. You drive down the road with one of those and you mess up everybody driving near you and in potentially other major like national security activities in your vicinity Be because GPS is a long way from us and it's just a really quiet radio saying, I'm here and this is the time. And your phone picks up that from four different satellites and instantly, I mean, you're lawyers, many of you, so you probably can't do geometry, but <laughs> your phone does the geometry and says, with three points plus another to error correct all the rest of them, I know exactly where I am. But it's a very quiet radio and easy to, easy to mess with. So we are, our adversaries are still not as good as we are in this stuff. But they've been, they have studied it, and those potential adversaries have, have focused on it. They know how to take apart our battle networks, and they've built their own. So we need to think about how to get after theirs, and we did a lot of thinking about that. I'm not saying any of these countries represent full-spectrum peers to the United States. If they did, I would have had to acknowledge my utter incompetence, since after five years of running the Air Force budget of $110 billion a year, which is more than almost any other country in the world spends on its defense entirely, we, we, should, we should be delivering world-beating capabilities, and we do. But again, given those geography and time and space limitations, that world-beating is not necessarily enough in the crisis of the moment and uh, that can increase the risk of conflict. So we, I mentioned three things we focused on. First was deliver effects from range. We decided we would invest in delivering effects from range because it was comparatively easy for potential adversaries to invest in weapon systems that would keep us out of their immediate backyard. If you follow defense issues, you've I'm sure heard of anti-access area denial. That's one manifestation of this. 
but there's a whole host of, uh, of capabilities that come together to uh, form that ability to keep even a, made, even a superpower out of your backyard. So delivering effects from range offers the opportunity to stay outside that bubble, impose not vulnerability, but uh, sorry, project not vulnerability, but rather project power. Uh, second big aspect was disaggregation, disaggregating large and complex systems uh, that we had put together, and those could be systems of, of many sorts. If you're a, how many folks here are uh, veterans of ground combat units, right? A brigade talk, large complex system of lots of people, lots of technology, all coming together to produce an operational picture that allows the commander to employ the force. That's a large, complex, highly vulnerable system in an era where somebody else has precision weapons, has access to space imagery or, uh, or drones flying and taking pictures and can target a weapon, you know, an explosive on you with precision. So if we can't operate like that in a big conflict, if we can't have fobs sitting around with, you know, just worrying about mortars coming in, how do we disaggregate that force but maintain the tactical effectiveness that you get when you are able to pull those people together? Tough problem, and that's where things like artificial intelligence, where your systems are able to maintain a sense of what should be done, even if they, the adversary has jammed your communications, starts to come into the equation. That's where we have to start to think about those kinds of issues. So how do we disaggregate complex, expensive systems to make them survivable or at least make them less lucrative targets for an adversary. And then the third big thread in here that we've talked about publicly was leveraging areas of sanctuary. And the biggest one we've talked about is the undersea, an area where U.S. technology is well ahead of um, anybody still. And in the previous administration, we made some very large and strategic investments focused both on maintaining that advantage and then also leveraging it up. For example, modifying our uh, Virginia submarine, Virginia class submarines to carry more missiles so that each one of them, while staying essentially unseen, could threaten many more potential targets for adversaries, uh, land, sea, even air base. So that um, became another major thread that's come out of it. Across all of this, the lesson is it's not just about GWIZ technology, it's about concepts for employing it. And it's about maintaining a balance between capability, capacity, and readiness. Because if you don't have stuff that's adequate and you don't have enough stuff, which, by the way, trades off, right, because the better stuff tends to cost more, and you haven't trained for how to use it, which, by the way, trades off with the other two because it costs you more to train a larger force and it costs you more to train with really cool stuff. If you don't have that balance right, then you are accepting more risk than you have. The space piece, my current job, weaves into all of this, as I think you've heard already. Um, but it is even further complicated by the fact that we used to assume government had all the answers. NASA, Air Force, intelligence community, way ahead of anybody other than the Soviets, right? And after the initial decade or so of the space age, well ahead of the Soviets. Today, while the preponderance of space activity is based in the United States or done by American companies, it's done often, a large share of it, with minimal government involvement. So we are still advantaged as a nation by having access to all this technology, but whereas the government used to drive the technology and really specify exactly what we're going to do, 
it's now flipped to an extent. And now you have commercial companies coming forward and saying, I could do this for you. I already have the technology. Would you like to buy it? I don't want to overplay that. There's still a whole bunch of areas where the government is the only customer and is driving the train. But in more and more areas that matter, that has shifted. And it's not just, you know, Elon Musk launching his uh, car into uh, deep space. It's, it's in a ton of areas, communications, what we would call in government intelligence, and many other So fascinating things going on in space. It is increasingly democratized. It is increasingly crowded with many actors doing many, many things. In fact, we are, if all of the proposed large space constellations that have been announced come to fruition, and, and they won't, but many of them I think will, the total population of operational satellites will grow tenfold in the next decade or so. That's from about 1,500 satellites on orbit today, operational, I'm not talking about all the debris, but to about 15,000, 16,000. And they're going to be doing entirely new things. And they will be selling you new products based on those new things. There's middle schools. There's a middle school in the D.C. area that has launched a satellite. Things are changing fast. So crowded and democratized and increasingly contested. Because everybody has gone to school on the way that that makes the military. And the first thing they'll do is jam the communications. And that, again, gets to how do you overcome still target weapons, still produce intelligence, still make smart decisions for, by commanders when that God's eyesight picture that we've become used to is contested every step. So we, uh, I will stop there because I've, I've covered a, a bunch of stuff in a broader way than I intended, but um, I would love to continue this discussion. I'd love to hear some of the implications of um, our quest for concrete and sustained conventional comprehensive conventional deterrence, and then all the problems it's made for the uh, lawyers and, and theorists of uh, military law. Thank you. Um, okay, well, that was scary. Uh, uh, wow, okay. Uh, I will not think about GPS the same way ever again. And It's done. Your job here is done. Okay, all right. Um, I want to try and occupy a ground that is kind of midway between um, what Jamie has done and the uh, legal areas that uh, Lori is going to talk about in ways that sort of move back and forth, not really very cleanly, I guess. Um, so I guess I'd like to talk about ways in which the battlefield winds up changing in large part because the bigger picture of geopolitics, the bigger picture of adversaries, bigger picture of technology winds up um, changing as well, um, and then frankly speculate on various ways in which I think that actually affects the battlefield, uh, and I think consistent with the veterans' um, theme in ways that um, impact on actually uh, individual soldiers, but with people who are um, actual veterans here, I'm curious to, very interested to get a sense of what many of you think uh, would be the sort of implications of some of these things. Um, so at the largest picture, I guess, if the question winds up being what will the battlefield look like, the first question is who's the adversary going to be? And I think that one of the most consequential shifts in this, in which, Jamie, you are decades ahead of, I would say, where most of public policy is in this in relation to the fact that everything that we have done since 9-11 has been focused on non-state adversaries, 
it's been focused on transnational non-state adversaries, also with non-state adversaries that are inside particular geographic zones. But we've not been fighting a lot of big state-on-state wars for a long time. And, um, and yet we all know that the shifts in the international political environment are shifting to be major powers. I guess I think that in kind of classical terms of saying great powers in which the question is not precisely the question of the U.S. as a superpower, because what I think Jamie said is exactly right in terms of power, but a broader question uh, that is engaged around the question of the hegemon, the hegemonic power that exercises power in part because it has a fair amount of legitimacy to act in global affairs in defense of kind of a broader international order, which is not uh, coincident, which is not identical to the system of international law and organizations, but in some sense stands outside of it. And what I mean by that precise, well, precisely no, but what I mean by that in, in sort of slightly different terms would be to say, we have grown up, especially lawyers like me in the international system in which we spend our time talking about international law, we talk about international institutions and organizations and all of that sort of stuff. When it comes to security affairs, neither we nor our friends nor even in a lot of ways our enemies have ever had to test the actual order set up by the Charter after the Second World War of collective security through the United Nations. We can talk about it all we like, but the reality is that it never truly gets tested because we wind up having a sort of backstop that operates outside of that system as not just a powerful sort of thing outside that system, but as something that actually has legitimacy and a recognition that there is this other thing out there that is um, responsible for providing rough order in the world, sort of the bottom line questions of security. And our friends benefit from that. We benefit from that. Our enemies benefit from having seas that they don't have to worry quite so much um, about you know, being able to put ships out on the high seas. Um, lots of different things that arise out of a position which is not just naked power, but is actually perceived as being legitimate in some way, and in which other parties are willing to fall behind to at least some extent, um, and with some recognition that it's sufficiently within their interest that they're willing to pursue it. And the question at this moment, I think, that is uh, certainly the one that kind of lights up the policy world and sort of world affairs and global affairs is, is the U.S., losing that position by sort of historical forces that are beyond anybody's control, the rise of China, all the stuff we've talked about? Or alternatively, is it deliberately stepping back from that role and could easily be a combination of both? And is it actually a permanent shift? I mean, there have been times over the post-war period where the U.S. has felt itself being pushed back uh, has in some cases taken actions that I would describe as sort of voluntarily stepping back. 
there is a particularly weird phenomenon here in which these things don't start with the 2016 election. The Trump administration or the Obama administration was very much committed to reshaping the role of the United States in the world. It was not comfortable with being described as the hegemon and described, well, made some of our very close friends uncomfortable in various ways. Conversation in 2010, I guess it was, with a senior French diplomat speaking entirely off the record, and he was apoplectic. He said, my God, I think that the Obama administration may actually be serious about the idea that it wants the U.S. just to be the biggest, most powerful player in the stable of nations within the U.N. system rather than occupying this role um, as having a sort of ultimate guarantor role. Uh, and he was really unhappy about it um, because he said neither the U.N. system of collective security nor... NATO, for that matter, are truly collective action systems. They have no answer to the you know, usual problem of uh, insincere promise of defection, right? the free rider problem. And NATO has exactly the same problem um, as well. And what it relies on is having lip service to the idea of collective security in each case, but an actual fact is that there are enough major players that see that their interests line up behind those of the dominant player sufficiently to fall in line with it on the major issues, both values as well as their kind of material interests. Is that shifting? And this French diplomat said, what we really dislike about this is when the Obama administration talks about it, they're really striving to find a way to not frame it as American isolationism, but a virtuous American move to move into the international system in a full kind of way, subject to international governance. He said, this is what within my ministry we're describing as being the American withdrawal into multilateralism. And he said, you can't quote me on that, so you should make that phrase your own. Happily did. All right. So the question is whether that shift is permanent, whether that shift reflects historical things. You know, no hegemon empire, whatever it is, lasts forever. Um, and yet the bet against American dominance in the way that I've described here has been predicted many times and yet so far has not actually come about. Thinking of the spectacular meltdown of um, Paul Kennedy's position in the late 1980s, a book that was basically about American decline and then the Cold War ends. So in a sense, I have sort of very mixed feelings about this because I wind up thinking nothing lasts forever, but at the same time, wind up thinking betting against America has been kind of a losing game um, for a long time. And I also would just say personally that my appreciation to veterans because at these moments we periodically had where there is a kind of need for American renewal in some fundamental way. I think that the fact of having veterans who have served across the political spectrum is just an enormously important thing because there are people who are willing to look beyond their own sort of narrow um, interests in so many different ways and I think it winds up ensuring that one has a leadership class and not merely a managerial class of elites. That is one of the things I think is an enormous um, blessing of that. 
All right, so those shifts then tell us about different adversaries that we haven't been preparing for, um, or well, I mean, you guys have been preparing for it, but the rest of us have not been sort of mentally um, thinking this through as much. Well, we all are now. And then we have a sort of question of shifting technologies that I think uh, pointed out very much and way beyond the stuff that I'm used to thinking about as a law of war lawyer in relation to uh, autonomous weapons or drones or things like that, but all of these systems of GPS, and I'm assuming, Jamie, that the that it's a lot easier to mess up those systems than it is to build one of your own. Yeah, asymmetry of a kind of different kind. And these I guess I'd stress in particular to sort of pick up where Paul and and um, and Peter I think would have uh, spoken would address in particular the areas that I tend to work on in this stuff, which is applications of different kinds of AI um, technologies to different parts of national security, where within my world of national security, the focus has been for a long time, first of all, on drones uh, as remotely piloted you know, vehicles, and then more lately on the possibility of kinetic weapons acting autonomously, whatever exactly that means. And those are two very important topics, but I guess a perception that I think is correct and kind of rising within, the, again, the policy world that I work in is the understanding that the low-hanging fruit is not really so much about autonomous weapon killer robots, machines out there on the battlefield kind of marching around, or any version of that that isn't sci-fi, but rather much low-hanging fruit that consists of pure software algorithms that are incorporated into the intelligence gathering and analysis process ranging from things at <laughs> gathering and processing of sensor data like you know, facial recognition, that sort of stuff, to very different kinds of software applications designed to analyze that, perhaps in big data applications, perhaps other kinds of ways. But that that is going to be vastly more likely to be the immediate stuff that winds up having a role both on the battlefield and across national security generally and across all sorts of other areas, including policing, including China's ability to have a social credit score for each one of their citizens. I'm also assuming for this that it's potentially easier to build a genuinely effective and predictive kind of big data thing, say, involving facial recognition, if you're actually pretty darn tolerant of a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives and you aren't too worried about the people you wind up hurting in that process. You don't think you have to go in with something that's essentially perfect to start with. You can develop it even if you have a lot of so-called, you know, so to speak, collateral damage along the way of people that you misidentified but didn't figure it out until you know, 10 years later or something. So I think there are certain kind of advantages that you have if you're willing to experiment on your entire own population as one big data um, pool. Those kinds of things, I think, are going to be things that shift the nature of the battlefield in terms of command and control, the ability to have awareness of what is going on tactically as well as at the larger level, and that all of it, I take it, is vulnerable at the level of the communications and how these things are linked together. Now, then we add to that the fact that 
you know, China has announced this uh, all forms of national power focus on artificial intelligence and these kinds of things. And I guess my initial reaction to that is, A, yeah, it's pretty easy to announce things like that on sort of the five-year plan. It's very different than to actually produce it. But on the other hand, I think they can wind up producing things that can only be generated out of that kind of everything combined together approach. The other thing that strikes me about that, however, from the geopolitical standpoint, is it seems to me to be destabilizing because it tempts adversaries to think that they can come up with what amount to software technologies and algorithms and ways to operate in cyberspace that uh, enable them to, in effect, leapfrog over America's large legacy state-of-the-art, but nonetheless um, physical systems that it's got. And I think that that strikes me as probably wrong, but it also strikes me as something that is a very tempting thought if you're an adversary that thinks you've got a way to build it all in kind of software. And that's leaving aside any of the sort of questions about information operations and all the rest of that stuff that comes up. Cyber warfare, of course, is uh, the other big thing um, there. But let me sort of wind this um, sort of discussion to a close by saying that the threats that are being faced are ones that I think are going to have enormous implications for where America sees its role in the world, how much it's willing to do to invest in maintaining a certain status quo order that appears costly to maintain until you don't maintain it and discover that it's not easily recoverable, if recoverable at all. And that doesn't mean, because I agree completely with the sort of major powers are not superpowers, great powers that can project into their near abroads can be hegemons if they want to be in sort of their own regions. All of those things I think are just enormously um, tempting possibilities with the following implication perhaps, for international law in these kinds of areas. I'll let Laurie tell me where I'm right or wrong about this, but the big picture I have of kind of the evolution of the law of armed conflict at the level of, say, the conduct of hostilities, the ways in which you fight, don't fight on the battlefield, they have been developed since 9-11 at least, but really going back to the end of the Cold War, on the sort of assumption that you have a single hyperpower that also has a certain amount of legitimacy and authority, even when many of its friends regard it as being kind of on an outlier in terms of its interpretations of the law of war, in terms of its interpretations of the rules of hostility. And in that regard, it is essentially seen as the party that can absorb all costs of everybody else's violations of the law of armed conflict. In other words, the non-state adversary, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, all these folks feel completely free with complete and utter impunity to use civilians in any way they want as human shields, as ways to sort of protect against all sorts of stuff. And in effect, the U.S. has been told that it has to find ways to absorb the cost to civilians and the humanitarian costs of having an adversary that has no compunction about violating those things and never suffers any 
backlash for it in any way that's real. Um, and our solution has been that we can come up with new technology that will allow us to be more precise in our targeting, that will allow us to absorb those costs without really having to sort of alter the perception of the rules themselves. And I wonder whether that can actually work on a going forward basis where we are dealing with large state adversaries that are close enough to being peers that the battlefield is not going to look like the U.S. dealing with some lightly armed folks down on the ground where you have drones that don't have to worry about any kind of air superiority when there's no systems that are going to sort of mess with them. All of that kind of stuff directed toward the non-state adversary. And at the same time, not really sure how much I regard Russia or China as being committed to the law of war as these things have evolved since 1990. And my fear there is, first of all, there's always the possibility that they just don't follow it and are acting in bad faith. I would put Russia's uh, air targeting practices in Syria in exactly that category. The problem is the relatively few conversations I've had with the Chinese and Russian scholars who are close to their governments is a sense that they really don't think that some of the most important developments that the U.S. may have accepted or may have accepted in very qualified ways, but lots of other folks have accepted, including most of our allies, uh, since 1990 are actually the law of war as it has been agreed to by sovereign states, including Russia and China. They do not think that what Human Rights Watch thinks is the law of war is actually the law of war, that it requires sovereign consent, and that this stuff that kind of grew and proliferated during the post-Cold War period, largely in sort of environments of nations that didn't have to think much about fighting, and the international community writ more largely, including the NGOs and international organizations, kind of came up with something where they never truly got sign-off in any meaningful way from Russia or China. China largely stayed silent. Russia thought it was too weak. And I don't think, in fact, that they believe that, that all of the sort of refinements of targeting rules that you know, we tend to have accepted are, in fact, binding. To the point of which I've had Russian scholars who I think really are stating their sincerely held beliefs that the targeting in Syria was lawful. And I said to this guy, well, yeah, but that's, but surely what you did in Grozny, right, where they flattened the place, could not have been lawful targeting. And, you know, this was absolutely defended in, in a way that made me think that he was actually sincere about it. The point is, and that's where I'll stop, is that I do not think that we should believe that we are able to accommodate all the ways in which an adversary may view the law of war differently than we have, or certainly our NATO allies have since 1990. Um, and we should not make any assumption that we're going to be able to sort of make up for that on the battlefield because we've got superior technology that can essentially absorb those costs. Let me stop there. Ask Gloria to correct me where I'm wrong. <laughs> Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. 
Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. 
And Delete Me is one of the Lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So thanks very much for having me. And um, it was nice to be in D.C. So I thought in looking at the sort of title of the event that I would throw out some ideas. I'm always interested in what puts pressure on the law uh, because the law, you know, it has the basic, basic principles that underlie the law of war are fairly constant for depending on how far back you want to go in time, but certainly a century, if not much, much more, depending on how you interpret things sort of from far back in the past. But as the nature and the character war changes, as the battlefield changes, new things put pressure on the law, and then we start to see what are the consequences. So not in any particular order, um, some thoughts about both now and looking forward, some of which will draw on the previous comments and some of which introduce a few new ideas. So one of the challenges, those of you in the room who are lawyers will, I think, recognize this, is that the law itself in almost any area is not a particularly nimble actor. If we can the law into an actor of kinds, right? It develops over time, especially international law, right? It develops customary law and so on. Um, it's like a giant aircraft carrier that if you want to, you know, turn takes a long, a long time. And so while 
in the operational context, armies might be able to adjust. Again, they're not necessarily that. Um, that's also a challenge for a major, massive organization to adjust to new, new constraints or new dynamics. Um, the law is often that's a challenge. So, with that in mind, um, a few things we think about all the new technologies, GPS, all different kinds of things that right now we just take for granted. Right, the the fact that we can identify, we know where something is through GPS. The all the capabilities we have going through space that we use all the time in military operations. Add in things that are developing, then that we will start to see put in place over the next decade or two. And what we end up having is a mix of remarkable technological capabilities. Um, if you think about what we can do with a drone, what we can see, how we can follow someone and know who they met with and what they had for breakfast and where they went and what they did day after day after day before deciding to issue the strike order and then do the battle damage assessment, all of these things, it's really quite a remarkable technology. We have that mixed with the fact that all that can be turned off by an adversary. And the law needs to work for both of those situations. The law needs to work for that incredible capability. It also still needs to work when you don't, when it's dark, right? When you don't have anything. Um, and that's an interesting challenge because what we've seen in the last certainly 15 years is we have gotten really accustomed in talking about law of war to the technological capabilities that we have. And so we talk about pattern of life assessments and, you know, we, we talk about proportionality where we have such intimate knowledge of the details of what's happening and precautionary measures and what we would know about the blast radius of this and that. Now turn it all off and imagine we're fighting essentially in the dark. Daytime, obviously. Um, how do we know? And can the law, is it elastic enough to work on Monday where we have all that technology and still work on Wednesday when we still have the same principles of distinction and proportionality and precautions and the same obligations to protect civilians and to so on and so forth. But we, we all of a sudden, we haven't exercised the muscles of doing that with our regular eyesight and all of, you know, regular person-to-person -person communication and not being able to rely on all that. So that's one challenge that I think is not just foreseeable, but I think is pretty certain to happen. Because if you're an adversary facing the U.S. or another advanced military with, some, you know, many of the same technological capabilities, your first thought should be, how do I turn all those off? Right. I mean, that's that's uh, that should be a, an, an obvious question. And as you know, we get more snazzy technologies with cyber and capabilities. That's all going to get easier to do. That's about as far as my cyber knowledge goes. So I'll defer back to Jamie when we get there. Um, OK, so a couple of other things where we start to see some tensions like this. Um, we have been, uh, as Ken was saying, since 9-11, we have been operating in partly because of this technology, we've been operating in an arena of hyper knowledge about the adversary to a level that if you think about, go back, not that many years, but you know, go back to World War II, you can, you don't have to go back that far, you can go back maybe 20 years. 
we don't normally know the names of the people you're fighting against, right? Let alone the names of their uncles and who they met with and where they normally go and who else lives in that village. We often, in counterterrorism operations, we, we have that knowledge, partly because it is an almost entirely intelligence-driven scenario. Um, and because you can't identify the enemy by what he or she wears, how he or she conducts him or herself, because they're trying to look like civilians who would be protected from attack. So you have to have other types of knowledge and information about it so that you can build essentially the portrait of somebody who who is the adversary, even though they're trying to mask that. So we have that, but we are, I mean, this is a, obviously a, a major topic of conversation is the fact that the counterterrorism context is not going to keep last forever. We do need to be able to fight a peer-to-peer conflict. Um, the law has to be able to fight a peer-to-peer conflict. It was developed for peer-to-peer conflict. It's been developed now, not transformed, but it's been, you know, massaged in essence for this sort of hyper-knowledge, very individualized warfare concept. What's going to happen, not just when we fight a somewhat peer to close peer, superpower, major power, those concepts. Um, we are going to, it's going to look more conventional, but we're going to still have that somewhat CT, hyper knowledge, individualized aspect, whether you like to talk about hybrid warfare, gray zone conflict, whatever the current hot term is for that, it's all going to be mixed in. The law, not only do the operators have to be nimble in back and forthing between those, but the law has to be able to handle that. It can't turn like a battleship. It's got to turn like my Prius, which let me tell you, <laughs> it can really turn. Um, and um, so that's another sort of tension, right? Another one that I think is interesting, and I haven't really thought through this, but I, as I was thinking about this, I, this is one thing that came to mind is historically, right? In war, you, fight things you can see, physical things, tanks, you know, people in buildings, right? There's stuff and you attack it and you blow it up or you destroy it, right? You you have, it's very physical, right? It's kinetic. Um, We are now in a world with cyber and many other things where there's a lot we can't see. Like just, it's not seeable at all. Um, So we are going to have this mix of fighting things we can see and we can't see, and how do we understand how they go together? What is the relationship? And I think that's another interesting question, what that's going to mean for the law in trying to do both of those. A couple of other things, uh, another sort of pieces of this puzzle, and I want to pick up, you used the word legitimacy before. This is a really interesting question. And the military, I know it's at least the Army, I'm not sure if it's across all the services, but the Army has now included legitimacy as a principle of war, which is very interesting. And legitimacy is very consequential for the law across a couple of of ways. So one is when we think about what, right, when you think about what are you actually fighting to achieve, right? And you fight a war, you're fighting to defeat the enemy. That's pretty obvious. You want to win. Um, But what are you trying to destroy in order to defeat that enemy? Historically, you're trying to destroy their capability. So they stop fighting you, right? And they say, okay, we're done. 
whatever that strategic dispute is about, you guys win, it's over, shake hands, we're done. Um, what we see now is um, certainly among the asymmetric side, um, and I don't want to, I mean, conflict has always been asymmetric. And from the, you, you want it to be asymmetric, right? If you're the U.S., you don't want to fight a symmetric conflict. It's the challenge of what the asymmetry in a given conflict brings, right? So they, the less powerful side, right, is never going to defeat the capability of the powerful side, right? The Taliban, ISIS, pick your favorite current evil actor that the U.S. is fighting against. They're not going to defeat the military capability of the U.S. What they can affect and they can erode and degrade, and hopefully nothing worse than that, but that's bad enough, is the legitimacy of the U.S. operations, right? This is what Hamas fights for when it fights against Israel. It's not going to defeat the IDF in, in actual physical kinetic form, but it has an enormous effect in terms of legitimacy, and that's what it's trying to destroy. So we see a total change there, right, in, in essence, in, you know, if you want to talk about the character of war, what are, what are you fighting for, right? It doesn't matter for many of these groups how many of the enemy force, the state military they kill. They're actually interested in how bad they look, make the state military look in the context of the conflict, because now they're really, they're kind of getting you in the soft underbelly, right? That's where legitimacy lies. Um, so where do these tensions ultimately play out? So one is, here the law of war is a major player, right, in a couple of ways. One is that the perception of law of war compliance or lack of compliance is the touchstone of legitimacy now. The touchstone I would say for the previous sort of stretch of decades was the the justness of going to war. Did you have a lawful cause, a just cause for going to war? Were you in the right, right, in going into a conflict? That's obviously still important, but what really matters now is are you fighting in a lawful manner? And not just are you actually complying with the law, but what, what really matters is the perception of whether or not you are complying. And think about the role of social media, right? Everybody here has a cell phone. So does everybody in the battle space in a conflict. And you take a picture, you take a video of something that was just destroyed, and you post it, and you say something about it, and the whole world now thinks there's been a war crime, there's been something else. There's a great quote, which I originally read was from Winston Churchill, but I'm told it was not attributable to him, right, which is that a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. So I don't know if anyone knows who actually said that, but it sounds good to say it was Churchill. Um, and he probably did, right? So there's no way to take it back once anybody, and it could even be those with good intentions, right, a human rights advocacy organization, they see what appears to be something that was wrong. They trumpet or whatever the negative version of trumpeted would be. And now the whole world thinks that a, a violation was committed. But in fact, right, it takes a while to figure out what happened. And the effects are not going to tell you the whole story. Think about make it more nefarious. Think about deep fakes. 
right? You can, I'll leave it to these guys to, to dive into that more if you want, because I can't possibly explain the technology of it, right? But you can basically now, it's my understanding, create a video of just about anything, tweak a video, and make it look like somebody said something or did something that they didn't do, and it looks really bad, and there you have it. There's countless stories of, you know, showing a picture or a video um, suggesting that something bad happened in X conflict. And that picture was actually from 22 years earlier in another one. In fact, it's the, it's the Myanmar most recently, right? Um, they took uh, pictures from Rwanda, if I'm remembering this correctly, of, of folks fleeing the Rwandan genocide, and they doctored it up and used it to show that I guess people were pouring into Myanmar. I, I don't even remember what they used it for, but in, and it was able pretty quickly for people to debunk it. But the fact of it going up immediately was enough. So one, one piece of this, right, the impact of all the, of this perception issue and the role of the law of war as a legitimacy touchstone is that whereas historically we would think about information operations as a supporting effort to combat, can now think about combat operations for many groups as a supporting effort to information operations, right? Because a, and I, I got that from a colleague, I didn't think that up, <laughs> but I, I'm sharing because I think it's really um, a clever way to think about it, right? For a group that is, that is interested in undermining the legitimacy of the adversary, but can't actually degrade their combat effectiveness, you engage in combat operations for the purpose of getting yourself access to that soft underbelly of legitimacy. Um, the last piece where legitimacy impacts the law is on the opposite side, um, which is that, go back to the, the U.S. And, and our coalition partners in the counterterrorism space, we have a very complicated mix of law and policy that develops the, the, the operational space in which we take action against these groups. And that tends to be much narrower than the, what the law allows. The law of armed conflict is a really big space, layer on policy and any number of other considerations, and the rules of engagement, right, the actual space for operation becomes much narrower. That's fine, there's a lot of reasons why we do that. Uh, but it's important to understand that that's policy and that's not changing the law of war, it's simply, a applying it in a given situation during, given all the other considerations. Um, the drive to demonstrate legitimacy uh, has a major impact on that law policy dynamic, right? So the, um, the presidential policy guidance, just 2015, whenever the Obama administration put it out, set out a number of rules for the use of force against terrorist actors and if you look at them, there's a lot that look really good. A near certainty that no civilians are present, so on and so forth. That's not what the law of war says. But most people, very understandably, not think those are actually the law's rules for using force. That if you violate that, you've broken the law. But if you don't follow that, you've not followed the policy. right? And you may be accountable under your domestic law, based depending on how that policy is implemented into law, but you haven't violated international law unless you go outside the bounds of the law of war as international law. And yet the need to show how well we comply 
right? That legitimacy need is driving this conflation of law and policy that is going to be really hard to untangle. That goes back to that shifting between counterterrorism and peer-to-peer. I'll leave it there. Let me ask a few follow-up questions for the panel. And um, and one is, one, one danger here is that we have a mindset of what is war with armed conflict, and we develop a construct based on that. And it strikes me that, you know, the construct we have in our minds of a peer-to-peer kind of conflict is heavily kinetic, lots of things blowing up, a lot of dead bodies. And so when we're thinking about, you know, anti-access, we're thinking about projecting power, we're really thinking of things blowing up. But it strikes me that the law, the, the future of war might be completely off the opposite. If you look at with the Russians sitting in Ukraine, this hybrid war, it was very subtle, very calculated to sort of take advantage of, of legitimacy issues. Or, or you could imagine, you know, a, an adversary putting at risk something that's important to us, but in ways that are not going to kill people or blow things up, such as shut down the stock market for a few days such as shut down um, an electrical grid for a sh- few hours, where, where, you, where suddenly the lawyers have to get involved to even talk about have we, have we even reached the threshold of the armed attack. And it, th- and it strikes me that there's, there's a case to be made that for an, at least in the near term, that the smart strategy of a China in a Taiwan kind of scenario might not be to blow up things in Guam, but to put at risk things in the United States through cyber, um, or, or, or even to have its attack on Guam be more like the hybrid warfare in the Ukraine than what we're now planning for. Uh, so I, I sort of welcome a, a response to what people think is, is that, that scenario. So I, I guess I'll jump on that first, Chuck. I think it, it's... First, I'd be careful about characterizing the fight in Ukraine quite that way. There were absolutely hybrid warfare aspects. There were also hundreds of thousands of pounds of high explosive delivered on military targets. There was a lot of violence in, uh, in a, what looks like a traditional state on state. We just it didn't get as much coverage, maybe. Well, I, think, I think what happened, the hybrid nature of it is that it was made to look like a civil war when, in fact, it was a state on state. To come back to what I was trying to make as my core point, and I'll actually wrap in what I thought was a really insightful point, Laurie, in addressing this. The, the goal, the goal of, of these investments, of this focus, is to preserve a comprehensive deterrence. The word comprehensive is important. Um, it's not just a nuclear deterrence, in which we stay below the threshold of ending humanity, although we, that's, that is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Hopefully, both necessary and accomplished. Um, but it, it's comprehensive in that it extends across all or most of the spectrum of conflict. Now, there's a portion, there's an area that is on the border between intelligence and covert action and cyber and conflict where nation states historically edge their way around, right? and do some things that they maybe don't acknowledge or they're embarrassed when they're caught. But 
that we probably can't have, even with a robust comprehensive deterrence, keep those out of the mix. However, um, it's like a game of chess in that you often win not with the attack you actually made, but with the attack that you threaten that forces the adversary into a series of other actions that then leave them open to the attack you actually made. And so for comprehensive deterrence, we need the Chinese not to attack one. We also need them to not attack the New York Stock Exchange. And if a conflict comes to the point that those kinds of things are being considered, you will you should expect uh, a potential adversary in that situation to choose the lever that is most likely to be effective, which means if you're seeking to prevent it, have a counter strategy, you have to find your points of greatest vulnerability and progressively mitigate. Uh, that gets to Laurie's point, and this is this was it was fascinating to me to hear her talking about the war on legitimacy issues um, because early in my scholarly career, that was a question that I was trying to wrap my arms around. It was um, particularly in the middle midst of the uh, um, the, diff the various fights in Serbia and Kosovo, right? And where and I was trying to coin a term of soft power jujitsu, where <laughs> a um, a weak adversary can use the hyperpowers, overwhelming superiority against their soft power resources, people on bridges holding up targets. I didn't successfully come up with a concept that I could popularize, so I became a, you know, <laughs> buying bombs guy. Um, oh, well. But the um, your to your point of legitimacy, where legitimacy is as important to us as I think it still is to the U.S., although, uh, to your point, Ken, maybe... Maybe we're changing our focus there and, and we have a different set of, of, of priorities that makes that less important. But if it is important to us and we have enculturated ourselves to the counterterrorism mentality of complete information, complete communications, five lawyers looking over the shoulder of the crew as they make a decision to pull a trigger, if potential adversaries think we have that culture so deeply inculcated now that we will apply it when it doesn't work, then they will, they will believe they can paralyze us. And that itself then becomes a major risk to comprehensive deterrence. You know, people have talked about self-deterrence for the United States. And, and if an adversary believes we are self-deterred, they may take risks that they shouldn't. In, in, my, in my mind, that actually turns the legal dialogue into uh, the appropriateness of these different constructs in different kinds of conflict into an absolute moral imperative. We need to think through how the legal culture can, must, and cannot, and oughtn't adapt on different parts of those questions in the context of a more traditional conflict. Because if we haven't grappled with that, we, we actually create a greater risk of that. Anyway, thank you for the thought that's really triggered to So just on that, I think there's some there are some sort of uh, cultural contextual challenges, certainly for the U.S. public, and I would think also for um, those for some of our allies. Um, we haven't fought a war on U.S. soil with the exception of the attack on Pearl Harbor since the Civil War, I 
think. I'll let, correct my history if I'm wrong. No, well, I mean, so depends on how you think. That was a major attack on us, but we haven't actually fought hostilities where we have been fighting on our own soil, right, against an enemy. Um, the American public has no idea what war looks like on your own territory. We go fight war on someone else's territory. And so um, the, the challenge for our national leaders, if we were to, is in any conflict, is how, right, you always need to maintain in a democracy public support for the operation, right? If whatever happens. Um, if our public doesn't have a grasp of what conflict looks like, then it all looks awful, <laughs> right? I mean, what we see, we, the royal we, right? We, people who, um, the 99% of our country who do not serve in the military, who are not, and then subtract the few who work in some other capacity where they go to conflict areas, we see death and destruction, right? And we need to have some ability to understand, make the connection between the national interest that has caused us to go fight in a conflict and the death and destruction that we cause, right? Because most people are not versed in the law of war, um, which provides a framework for understanding that. Our leaders need to be able to use that in their conversation. Um, and I think that is a challenge um, that adds, right? It's not just the external legitimacy, it's the legitimacy at home. Right. Why are we now if you're fighting a war on your own territory, it's pretty clear. It comes a lot clearer to the public, you know, the, the sort of cost benefit um, analysis there, because it's like this is my town. Right. Save my town from the marauding invaders. Right. But when that's being fought 9000 miles away, you don't you'd like watching it on literally you're watching it on TV. Right. That's that's the connection. And I think that's. I think that's also another another challenge, certainly for the U.S., is in communicating to the public what all this means. And just to give an example um, that ties again into the legitimacy, there was a remark made by at least one administration official several years ago about how the U.S. has caused zero casualties in drone strikes. First of all, it's totally impossible. It's, it's completely impossible. But what is the message it sends? The message is we are unbelievably precise, unbelievably careful. We don't make any mistakes, and we're not going to hurt anybody that we don't purposely intend to hurt. Wow, that's quite a standard we've set for ourselves, right? Can't meet it. Impossible, right? Simply cannot meet that. So therefore, as a result, every single time someone is harmed in a drone strike who wasn't the person we actually were trying to um, eliminate, which if you haven't, it used to always be the number three in Al-Qaeda. I don't know if you ever noticed. That was like the worst job in the world, right? We took out the number three in Al-Qaeda about 40 times. Um, so, um, right, but every single time, if I'm your former organization, Human Rights Watch, I'm going to just be like, uh, excuse me, U.S., 
what's going on with this? Why did even one person get hurt, let alone the nine that we saw? Because you told us you caused zero casualties. So you must have meant to kill those nine people. And I can tell you they're civilians because they were six and nine and, you know, uh, a pregnant woman and somebody heading to the hospital. So what are you doing? Now we, we create our own problem. I mean, just totally unnecessary self-injury right there. And so there's a lot of messaging that we need to think about. Um, don't always need to just say how fantastic we are. Like that was a little overboard. Uh, zero casualties. It's totally impossible, right? We know that. And the, the reverberating effects of that, are, it's, take, it's taken us a little while to tamp that down. Um, and uh, it's like a field day for an advocacy organization. And we haven't, we haven't, we're getting close to the uh, time and we haven't talked about co -opers. Cannot, we cannot let the evening go. But, but there's a live debate going on now about um, autonomy and, and how autonomy may reach the level where if you don't use it and an adversary does, that the, the, you, you'll be defeated. And, um, and so there's an argument that now is the time to ban autonomous weapons. Um, and also a debate about, but wait a second, maybe autonomy will be so good that it will be less likely to have civilian damage, more likely to comply with international law. And welcome folks' thoughts about whether, how we should think about autonomy both as a war fighting tool and also as uh, what's illegal or not. And I'm going to, uh, okay, so I will start and essentially focus on where the kind of international law discussion is um, uh, at this point. Um, but saying at the outset that I think that it is misconceived from beginning to end. And I'm sorry to say that the, <laughs> the section of Human Rights Watch that I um, founded that kicked off the landmines ban campaign back in the early 1990s, it's, you know, it's awkward for me because I disagree entirely with all the people I hired who are still there <laughs> running the Ban Killer Robots campaign and um, think that it has just been a completely mistaken discussion all the way through. Because it takes off from the point um, that it buys completely into sort of the pop culture views of the Terminator and Killer Robots and Skynet and all of this kind of stuff plays on those fears. And then when you wind up challenging, again, my former colleagues about this, they sort of shrug and say, well, that's just for the popular audience. We all know that the issues are these other things that are like serious. Um, but they're not really, because the framing of the call to ban these things preemptively at the outset, and if you look at the original Human Rights Watch call to ban autonomous weapon systems, they modeled it on um, the, I think, quite reasonable calls to ban a lot of um, uh, research lines into certain kinds of biological weapons and things like that. But it called for a ban on anything that would be the development of technologies that could be used right, in order to enable a system to be autonomous. Goodbye, self-driving cars. You know, backed away from that very quickly. But the fundamental framing of this was a view that said the problem with these technologies, cribbing from Elon Musk, 
is that they are too smart for our own good. As far as I know, the problem with any technology we've ever invented ever is that it's too stupid. It cannot accomplish the things we want it to accomplish. And so that is true of every military technology ever developed. And so why one needs to talk about a ban on the technology on a completely misplaced assumption that it will, in effect, get beyond our control in some fashion, um, versus doing what the law of war already requires, in which, Chuck, you've got great experience um, with just from the positions you've held, of the requirements of a legal review of the weapon in order to assess the uh, legality of the weapon system itself and the battlefield environments under which it can be used and the uses to which it can be put on the battlefield, which is not any different than any other weapon system at all. And my own view of that is that we're not going to be coming up with weapons that are truly autonomous in the sense that is being discussed um, anytime soon. And, you know, never say never about uh, what technology might do. But the realistic issues are not about weapons that are genuinely autonomous making their own decisions about this. The question is always going to be, where do we want the human active in that role at that point in time, and where are we okay with having the human removed in time um, in terms of putting in place the programming? And those will all be case by case, and it will be circumstance by circumstance and battlefield environment by battlefield environment. And in that regard, I think that the sort of categorical discussions about bans, not bans, um, all of that is a misunderstanding of the technology. And the misunderstanding of where its utility lies, which is never sort of just sending the kind of machines off to do something. So um, that's my sort of take of where we are in the current um, legal discussion. I think that's pretty, I think that's hard. hard. The, uh, it's important to realize, first, I should really know better than to get into a definitional fight with lawyers, but the, the word autonomy is the wrong word, right? We've had autonomous weapons for many, many years. Uh, the bullet is autonomous. Well, bullet is autonomous and, and unguided after release, but air-to-air -air missiles, Radiation homing missiles that follow the other, the adversary's radar. They they have a sensor on the end that is sniffing to you know pick up electromagnetic radiation from whatever's emitting it, and they make sense of that, and they go where they go based on an algorithm that is making judgments about the world around. Am I being spoofed? Am I? Is there another thing I didn't know was there when I was launched? Somebody pulls a trigger to launch. Three minutes later, you know, it is operating autonomously and has been since the Vietnam War. Right? I mean, this is, the, the algorithms have gotten a lot more complex, but that's autonomy in a reasonable sense, right? Somebody that flies into that zone, emitting the wrong thing, gets targeted by an autonomous algorithm, and we've lived with that for a long time. What if I offered you, let's take the, um, the Hellfire missile, always an example of, you know, Pick interesting names for weapons. The Hellfire missile, that's the missile that was developed to kill tanks, but it became the weapon of choice for the, you know, remotely piloted aircraft. What if I developed an algorithm for that, that in terminal guidance, instead of tracking on a laser beam that was shot from the plane that launched it, or uh, using whatever other seeker it has for the ending, what if I put a seeker on it that actually could distinguish a six-year-old 
from a uh, called in the Pentagon when I was there, a military age man. No reason you couldn't, right? I mean, you could put some sort of radar or optical sensor on there that can tell short people. And that's a simple heuristic. But if I offered you that, would that autonomous weapon that's making that decision be more humane than the one that just follows the beam? There's at least room for a very credible argument there. And, and if, we are, if we are unable to ban landmines, if I have a landmine that is more intelligent than what we put in the, in the ground now and you know, recognizes the difference between being picked up to play softball versus uh, being, having, a, having a tank crew disabling it so they can move their unit through. I, I, don't, I don't have a position on that, but it's a question, right? <laughs> so I, I think... I don't think this black and white and this definition of terms like autonomous is really the right way to get at this. Learning killing machines that develop their own algorithms and adapt them rapidly over time, I'm a little more concerned about that. But again, in the context of the kind of fight I was talking about in my opening, those sort of attributes may be at high premium as well. So how do you bound that in a way that you can have confidence? These are really tough problems, and they need an intersection between technology thinkers policy thinkers, and strategists who understand how these things could actually be employed all in this rubric of what are we as a society comfortable with from a legal perspective and a moral perspective. It's a fascinating time. I mean, space is right now is undergoing a lot of attention. A lot of, you know, a lot of really interesting stuff is happening. Most of it highly classified, but it's because it's a real problem. And it fits into what Jamie was talking about, how we how we can continue to have keep, keep our capabilities and project out. I'm going to thank, thank the panel for a great discussion. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Arnold and Porter for providing audio of the event. If you haven't yet, Go give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us and share us with your friends and followers on Facebook and Twitter. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And until next time, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.